power on. The following is a presentation of the Sovereign Tech Podcast feed. The man of tomorrow is here with you, the Golden Stallion, Savzu, the Rated R Radio star, Dr. Brian Sovereign, ready to pull out that doctor right here on uh, what is one of, (laughs) honestly, in recent years, one of my favorite things to do. And that is, uh, of course, boy, when was the first time? I can't really, I want to say it was in 2020, maybe it was in 2021. The very first time, it must have been 2021, because I I don't know that they've necessarily been around that long. But the very first time I was asked to be on the Agora podcast with uh, Penguin and Sek Magora, uh, just had a fantastic time the very first time that I was on. And I think it went over so well with people that, well, they they had me on again and then again and again and again and again. (laughs) And it ended up turning into where we do our own kind of sub-series within the Agora podcast, which we ended up titling it Into the Void. Now, because of that title, you're going to end up hearing a kick-ass Black Sabbath song, of course, that being Into the Void. Uh, As I've talked about before, I was voting for the Ace Frehley slash Kiss off a Psycho Circus song, Into the Void, but Black Sabbath, you know, no complaints here, as you'll hear me talk about in this. Now, this episode... Uh, that you're about to hear. You're about to hear number three in the series on Into the Void. Uh, Covers a pretty broad gamut. It is two hours of just flowing conversation, but it's not just about one thing. However, the entire first hour, just to give you a bit of preview on this, um, and I'll talk about why I'm releasing this now, because this originally was recorded, I want to say end of July, and ended up going live in the Agora podcast feed um, on August 7th, 2022. Now, something to understand, uh, we don't like prep for this show, really. As in, like, yeah, like maybe I'll ask Sec, like, hey, so do we have any specific topics we want to go into? And maybe there'll be something. But you got to understand, all Sec will give me is like, a couple words or a sentence, <laughs> you know, it's not like there's uh, huge show notes and we're all kind of coming on to, you know, getting behind the mics, uh, and, and really just playing it off the cuff, you know? So, and, and I like to bring that up. Why? Because I want to give credit to really the, you know, the, the, the intelligence of sec and penguin in the, and just you know, just the nuggets of, of wisdom and, and factoids and knowledge that they lay out, you know, sight unseen. And I love that. I mean, for one of the major reasons, like this is a reason I don't really edit podcasts much is because if somebody is a bumbling idiot, I want you to hear them being a bumbling idiot. I don't want to edit out their, uh, mistakes. I don't want to edit out their, their, their pauses where, Oh, I need this. You know, I, I got to think about this for a minute or whatever. If somebody has to do that, I mean, Hey, everybody forgets a term or something. You'll even hear me do that in this, but I'm talking about where, you know, I, me personally, I feel like probably 95% of the podcast space are people that sound good only because of editing, not because they're actually brilliant. I think that sec and penguin are actually brilliant. And you get to hear that, you know, in this, um, 
So, but that's the reason I don't really like to, to edit. And also it's part of the reason I don't actually get a whole lot of guests, um, you know, on, onto sovereign tech proper because I make that very clear with people. I've had people offer, I've had people email all the time saying, Hey, this person would be great on the show. This person would be this. And, you know, now if I'm asking somebody to be a guest on sovereign tech, or as we should call it now, sovereign technica, if I'm asking somebody to, to, to be a guest, um, then I will give them, you know, you know, full editing rights. Like, okay, if there's something you want me to cut out or whatever, because I asked them. So that's, you know, in my opinion, that's just me being fair and gracious. Uh, however, if somebody's asking to be on my show, well, I, you know, like I'm only asking somebody if, because I vetted them already and I know what they can bring to the table, but if somebody's asking to be on my show, uh, you know, <laughs> okay, if you want to be on, but here's the stipulations. And one of the stipulations is, you know, you don't have editorial control. I do. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to put this out how I want to. And, you, you know, you, you don't, again, you have zero editorial control. And so if somebody sounds like a goof, they're going to sound like a goof. If they miss, if they misspeak, well, that's on them. Unless, you know, if they want to ask later and be nice about it, maybe I'd be nice about it. But, but that, that's what you got to understand. Okay. So this is the into the void series is an incredibly off the cuff, just free flowing, whatever we end up talking about, because for the first hour, like I said, for the first hour here, we're going to talk about the Jewish question. I sec did not tell me that we were going to do that. Like I, I had no idea. We just kind of pick it up and, and we run with it, you know, and sec calls me, uh, his favorite satanic Jew hell bent on, uh, destroying Western civilization. Yeah. I mean, have truer words ever been spoken of who I am? You know, <laughs> absolutely. So, you know, and, and, and we just kind of ride from that. And it turns into a whole thing about like, okay, well, what about, you know, conspiracies about the Jews? What about the Rothschild? What about Israel? What about all this? And we get into all of that. Then that, of course, eventually leads to, you know, questions about Nazis. And then we end up talking about the Glocka and UFOs. And then that turns into a whole other conversation around uh, the nature of reality and uh, problems with, you know, language, which is a common subject on Into the Void, as well as, uh, you know, getting into axioms, which I think is a really important conversation to have. Now, if you've listened to uh, segments of Ancient and the Strange on Sovereign Technica, if you've listened to those, um, there was actually an entire segment that I did about axioms and the importance of axioms and understanding what is truth. Uh, and I kind of, you know, kind of tread, uh, you know, retread a bit of that ground, you know, on this one. But we also get into a, you know, a bigger conversation around it. Um, and, and I think it's all just, just brilliant philosophical and historical conversations. Now it does end off with a cliffhanger and that cliffhanger is something that started with the very first episode that we did of into the void, which was, you know, that I made the statement that the universe slash existence, uh, is tripartite in nature. Now it ends with a cliffhanger. Like I said, here's the thing. Shortly after I release this episode, as in within a matter of days after I release what you're hearing right now, after this is live, okay, what I'm recording right now, um, we, Sec, Penguin, and I, we did the fourth episode of Into the Void just recently, and that tease gets paid off. 
And I thought it was a dynamite wild ride of an episode. I mean, just wild. Uh, that also went two hours plus, I think <laughs> might've been two hours plus, um, that I can't wait to share with you. And I will put, you know, a custom intro, uh, on that one as well for Sovereign Technica listeners. So bottom line, I think releasing this episode now, even though it was originally released, uh, by the Agora podcast proper in August of 2022, and we're, you know, months past that, um, I think it makes a lot of sense because these conversations are going to really play off of each other. Um, even I think it makes sense to have a conversation around the history of the Jews, which is very much, like I said, what the first hour of this is, um, there is also, and I'm tempted to release it, maybe even for an Ancient and the Strange. There was a Q&A, that, a Wednesday Q&A that I did for uh, Sovereign Technica patrons. Got to get used to saying all that. <laughs> the abbreviation Sovereign Tech still works, right? It's just, you just take off the ICA, you know, uh, so you could still call it Sovereign Tech. But anyway, regardless, let's keep going. Uh, <laughs> but I did um, a, a rather lengthy Q&A about the, the, you know, questions around Israel and like the ethical existence of Israel or the lack thereof, perhaps. Um, of course I'm an anarchist, so, you know, I don't think it's ethical for any nation to ex any nation state to exist. Um, but regardless, I might put that out to the public, but of course you're also welcome to become a sovereign tech patron at patreon.com slash sovereign tech, uh, you know, to, to get listening to that now. Um, but I think that it's important as, especially when we get into the nature of the universe, <laughs> the tripartite nature of the universe, as we will, and into the void number four, which, like I said, I will release that in a few days. Um, and, and actually I'm going to release it early for, for sovereign tech patrons. So, so they can get their, their hookup on that. So, you know, if you want to hear it sooner rather than later, all you got to do is become a sovereign tech patron. But as we get into this conversation, around the, um, the tripartite nature, you know, of existence, uh, you know, Kabbalah is going to come up because I think Kabbalah has answers. Let me be abundantly clear. There is no God, but that doesn't mean that ancient texts don't have truths within them. And so perhaps this conversation and into the void, especially the first hour, even though I think all two hours is, is phenomenal listening. We even talk about world war one. I. I mean, there's just all kinds of stuff that gets brought up. Um, perhaps some deep programming, shall we say on, uh, Jewish conspiracies is helpful for listeners before they can really, you know, like grok what, you know, Kabbalah, which is Jewish mysticism, even though I'd argue it's much more than that, but you know, before you can grok what Kabbalah has to say, on the grandest scale, you know, of the cosmos and beyond, uh, <laughs> not to get all buzz Lightyear on everybody to infinity and beyond, but may, maybe that'd be, <laughs> it's actually kind of fitting. Uh, anyway, so check this one out again. It's two hours, a great time. Uh, just, you know, just three guys laying it out, um, and a free flowing conversation. But again, you really get to hear, uh, you know, the, the, the brilliance of, of SEC and Penguin. Um, and it's always an honor uh, and a great time for me to speak with them. So 
Uh, I will leave it at that. Nothing will come at the end. I'll let the music just ride it out. And uh, I will see all of you woo, on the other side. The Agora podcast is covered by a BIPCOT no-gov license. Use and reuse is free and encouraged by anyone except governments or their agents. Find out more at BIPCOT.org. Folks, welcome back to the Agora Podcast, your home for agorism, localism, radical decentralization, anti-authoritarian concepts. It's Penguin here with SEC, and we're uh, joined by Dr. Brian Sovereign for another episode of Enter the Void. Uh, welcome back, uh, Dr. Sovereign. Thanks, Penguin. Yeah, I mean, are, are we going to get the great opening music again, too? Or are, are we going to make that happen? Sabbath! Yeah. We're yeah, <laughs> yeah. We always had to have a guest that has his own, um, has his own intro music. That's a, I like yeah. that, that meme. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Wow, that's a great idea. I need to do that with my show, man. <laughs> Just a different intro for every guest. Yeah, every time you have a guest on, like, have no, a- no, one guest, one guest gets his own special intro. Oh, oh yeah. Right. Podcast right. I have, yeah, I podcast I listen to a lot. Um, ha- had that or has that, I guess. And uh, yeah, it's it, it's pretty sick, and it's the same the same thing. It's our most most repeated guest, and really That's glad right. to have you back on. Well, we Brian is my, my favorite satanic Jew, <laughs> hell bent on hell bent on destroying Western civilization. So, I'm yeah. I'm not, I don't have any evidence that he's a reptile. I haven't seen his <laughs> eyes blink, but you know that's up to you know you can make your own decisions about that so i'll 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 run with that description that works for me and you know <laughs> kind of like they said in uh and i'm gonna get you sucker you know like you got to have your theme music with you every every good hero needs that but uh well, you got sabbath so yeah i got Sabbath. No, I'm, yeah. I'm not gonna complain about that so <laughs> you know i did get accused once actually of my eyes blinking um horizontally my like Nictitating membranes. I told you, folks. I told you. (laughs) Secret reptile. Um, Anyway. So you've been doing a lot of new things with Sovereign Tech. We want to take a second and uh, um, tell them about what you guys have been doing over there. Yeah, sure thing. So, um, of course, Sovereign Tech is my show that I've been doing, uh, well, for the past 10 years now. and it's lately the show has been well, particularly with 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 if you're a patron, um, you know, you're welcome to sign up for that. And of course, if you sign up for mine, though, the deal is you have to sign up for the Agora Podcast Patreon as well. But <laughs> so it's double trouble. But I gotta uh, say, we've got a a cool little crossover community situation going yeah. on. Yeah, 
where it's it, it's really cool a lot of cool conversations so hop on his patreon or ours it's cool and um a lot of interesting conversation a lot of very high-minded stuff so uh definitely yeah definitely check that out definitely um so, but anyway, yeah, I mean, I've been, I've been branching into really, and, and I got to say, like, I got to give the Agora podcast credit where it's deserved. Um, you know, you guys have uh, gotten me to open my mouth to certain subjects more so than I have in the past. Um, and, but people really seem to like it, which is part of the reason, you know, we're doing another episode into the void here. And, um, you know, I've been kind of leaning the show a little more in that direction, a little bit away from, uh, or, you know, not away from, but. Uh, running in parallel with a lot of the tech news that I usually talk about, but I think there's actually a lot of synergy between the tech news and really what is the subject of, even though I don't like the terms so much, um, just to keep it simple, you know, synergy between tech and spirituality. Um, and with that in mind, actually, the other thing I, you know, I'd, I'd love to talk about or, you know, just briefly mention for people to check out. Um, so myself and uh, my wife, Ellen Sovereign, um, we've been putting out a, what we call the Sovereign Technica newsletter. Um, and we've been doing this for a few months now. Um, and one of the things I write in it is actually a spirituality section. And there's plenty of sections within it that cover the strange stuff like we talk about in, you know, Into the Void, um, all, all kinds of wild things. But it is, I mean, I cannot tell you the amount of work that Ellen puts into it. Um, and I mean, I, I, you know, they come out once every two weeks. So it's bi biweekly. And um, I mean, it's like a full-time job for her. That's how much effort she puts into it and, and the things that she writes up on. And, you know, she's a full-on engineer and scientist, so she's got things to say, certainly about, you know, what's going on in the world and, you know, in the latest news and all that matter. Uh, so definitely something I'd love for people to check out that are listening to this, but it's uh, sovereign.substack.com. That's that's where you, can, uh, where you can check it out. And there's a free version. There's a paid version as well. Uh, either one, go for it. You know, if you find value, it's great. If you want to pay, if you don't, you don't, but, um, yeah, that's, that's been, a, that's been really exciting to do partly because, and we've talked about this on, you know, previous times that I've been on the Agora podcast. Um, I mean, so much, so many of the news outlets like they're, you know, and this doesn't surprise anybody, but they're like, they're, they're spewing just nonsense half the time. And, uh, you know, like where can you get like genuine real news, real analysis, and it's not something that's just copy paste from all the other guys and, you know, wrong information gets out there. Well, you know, myself and Ellen, we like to think we're pretty good filters and, and that's what we do with it. So, uh, so it, really exciting venture for us. And I, I love getting to write, you know, I mean, I, I know most people know me for my, you know, microphone work as it were. Um, that's not like a porn joke or anything, but, uh, <laughs> most people know me for my microphone work, but, um, uh, I love writing. It, it's, it's actually, ironically, writing is like the thing that got me into computers in the first place when I was like six years old, because it was like endless paper being able to write on a computer. And so it just, it started a love affair, uh, with, with the PC that, that more or less continues to this day. <laughs> Anyway, so feel free, you know, people to check that out, sovereign.substack.com and, of course, sovereigntech.com if you want to check out the podcast. But I know we've got things to get into here, so, you know, I'm ready for that. Yeah, I got to say about the, the newsletter, uh, I've only just kind of scoped it out some and, and skimmed through some of it. It seems sure. like some really interesting stuff, though. So I, I would that. highly recommend checking it out. It's some really cool stuff. It's right. Uh, if listeners of the podcast, I think, would find it right up their alley um, yeah. on, on a lot of things. So 
um, yeah, definitely check that out. I'm glad to see that. Um, and I know how much work that must be. So um, if you got a few bucks, send them a few bucks, you know. Appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, hey, uh, let's talk about the Jewish question. <laughs> wow. Is, er is everyone is everyone good and uncomfortable? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I had this thought when I made the, the satanic Jude joke. Yeah. Um, so I was a conspiracy nut, still am, for a very, very long time. And um, the thing that never made sense to me was the idea that, oh, you know, the, the Jews run everything, right? The Jews run all the yeah. banking and the whatever, and they run the rule and the satanic Jewish cabal. Here's the thing about that that I find interesting is that if you're studying the elites, uh, specifically in America and uh, Britain um, for over the past like hundred years, um, mm -hmm. all this stuff about Jews came from them. Like, and they were all waspy Protestants to the man, like every single, I mean, Rockefeller, uh, JP Morgan, the Carnegie's, all these yes. people. Right. Um, you know, New England, blue blood, waspy Protestant, super white and all this stuff about like, oh, my God, the Jews are coming and they're taking, you know, they're, they run the banking. That that rumor comes from them. And the reason for that mainly is, is because in the 1800s, you had the Jews running from Eastern Europe coming to America. <laughs> and some of them were, uh, you know, making productive uh, productive people of themselves, you know, they come over, they're immigrants, etc. Sure. So the the idea that they run anything, you know, uh, I mean, of course, this is possibly more true now, but um, there's elites of all stripes. But the idea that the the elite class is somehow like a Jewish conspiracy never sat well with me. Like even at my mm -hmm. most crazy with the conspiracy stuff. Um, and like I said, um, that sort of thing, like if take Thomas Edison, yeah, waspy, um, you know, uh, upper class, um, he held, uh, this is a perfect example because he held the patents for, uh, movies and also records and all of mm -hmm. these, all of these things. And he literally started saying oh my god the jews are taking over all of these industries because he had the slightest bit of competition from jewish immigrants right uh, specifically we'll say the warner brothers who are um and he literally sent like gun thugs and and people after them to to squash his competition yes so this is the kind of this is where these sort of rumors come from is from the elite class sort of blaming the new immigrants who are trying to, you know, make an, you know, make something of themselves. Uh, you know, it's pitting the, the, um, you know, it's pitting the middle class against the, the poor. You know what I mean? It's the yeah. same old trick of, uh, um, of, of elites. What, what are your thoughts on that? Or does this go farther? Like some people might say this goes back to like middle evil Europe when the Christians were not allowed to lend money. Bingo. And, yeah. And, the Jews were, but even still, they were not the elite class. They were like what you might call like upper middle to upper middle class. They weren't aristocrats, you know? So, yeah, yeah, no, I, I think you're on and I'm glad you brought up the, you know, again, so when the Holy Roman empire as in Catholicism was running the show or some people still think they are. Um, 
And that, that see, now that's a conspiracy theory you can actually find tons of evidence for, you know, as to where, like, the idea that the Jews are running everything, like, good luck with that. I mean, the only name they can point at is Rothschild. And when you don't mention, like you said, Carnegie, J.P. Morgan, you know, and, and go down the list of them in the same breath, like, you know, somebody's, frankly, they, they've just got a... They've just got some some non-kosher beef to take with with the Jews for some reason. Um, but yeah, there's a great book by uh, Frank. I think his name is Frank Miller, which is The Jews and Capitalism uh, that came out. I want to say about 15 years ago it came out. And it covers this whole subject where with Catholicism, um, you were not allowed to you know collect usury. You were not allowed to collect interest on loans. Yep. Um, and yeah, so same with his son. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, they took, they actually took the rule seriously at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so as to where Islam, I would imagine, like followed that rule and did not like try to cheat it. Catholicism absolutely cheated it, and basically Catholicism, while in you know with while one hand is drowning you know a Jew in ice cold water, the other is saying, hey, could you handle this loan and collect a little extra interest for us and everything? <laughs> I mean, that's like. Like it wasn't it wasn't a situation where, say, like the Jews had more money to loan out. It was and, and I think there's 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 pretty, pretty good evidence for this that the Catholics or, you know, whoever in Europe were using the Jews because they were the ones that didn't, you know, they were an underclass that didn't have to play by the same rules as everybody else. Um, yeah, well, well, keep in mind, like, it, I, 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 it seems kind of bizarre when you think about it, because it's like, okay, these guys are going to do the, the bad thing and go to hell, because I guess they're going to hell anyway. So mm -hmm. it's okay if we just have them do it, which just seems absolutely bizarre. Um, right. If you actually really believe in the rule, but I guess that's, they, they somehow justified that logic. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you do have that. I mean, the Rothschild thing, uh, I don't, I don't want to like reiterate all of it here, but I actually have a video on YouTube um, that's fairly popular that like debunks the whole, the whole Rothschild conspiracy, because it's just like the idea that he was funding both sides of, you know, wars with, you know, wherever Napoleon and others, like none, none of that is true. We, we have, you know, excellent evidence saying that, no, there's like Rothschild didn't know this part. And anyway, Maybe if I think of it, I'll send the link for the video, but it's pretty easy to find. You know, just look up Brian Sovereign. And I mean, they are shysty bankers, you know, oh, and sure, they do have sure. their hands in politicians' pockets, but they're a sure. long, there's a long list of those people. You know what I mean? Like, it's not specific yeah. to the Rothschilds. Right, right. Well, I think what you had happen in America, particularly in 19th century America and, and early 20th century America, was there, there was this breakaway from the European style of business. Um and something that is, you know, heading towards what you could argue would be free markets, but not really, of course. Um, and I, yeah, I think that there absolutely was, it's not so much the Jews, a conspiracy of the Jews against like the Gentiles, but it was almost the other way around where like all this new money was coming into, because this happens in Brazil as well, which that's a whole other story, but you have all this new money coming into America and it's not money, you know, under the control of the robber barons. And so, you know, like, like I, I, I think that they, they really wanted to, to put us like the, the robber barons, as it were, all those guys, they wanted to, they wanted a lot more control and they wanted to put a stop, um, you know, to, to a lot of this like old money kind of coming in. Um, 
So that's where I, I feel like a lot of the smearing of the Rothschild, like in, in say the 20th century would come from was, you know, more of like a fear of that. And again, like you said, are, are they still like, like Chyster bankers? Absolutely. hundred percent. And I'm saying that as again, someone who is Jewish. Uh, but yeah, it, this idea that again, that the, the Jews are like controlling everything. No, that, that, that just comes out of, you know, like a, a, a an attitude of trying, well, I think you're, you're wanting to point fingers and like keep keep another group from coming into any kind of power either. So, anyway. I mean, the Jews were the upstarts at the time, um, right? Kind of, kind of kind of moving in on the territory of the uh, you know the the earlier the mm -hmm. earliest wave of um, what we call robber barons. So you know these yeah you mentioned the names, but yeah. So I mean, I think a lot a lot of it just comes from that that um, well these people own printing presses and newspapers so they could obviously you know disseminate you know either subtly or overtly like this kind of message and um i think you know there's a lot more to it like you said the medieval stuff and and i mean you can also look around and say oh look uh media banking um business government in general there's jews absolutely far far beyond like their percentages i mean if if you just looked at it out of context or you know you just kind of looked around you could see ample, like um, at least circumstantial evidence that the Jews are running everything. But I mean, that's kind of just the niche that they took when they, you know, settled in this country. I think you know, they got they went to school. They got yeah. law they got law degrees. Right. Actually, that was like one of their main niches. They got law degrees. They did business. They owned open businesses. And then what? What, what are their? What are their children's do? What, what did their children's children do? Um, yeah. They don't, I mean, they don't you can own, go back they and Delhi. They you know. You can go back even farther than those like, oh, God, the Jews are taking over boxing. You know what I mean? When oh, they yeah. first came over because they didn't have any other opportunity. They were immigrants and they were just they dominated boxing. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, no, Jews are just, you know, they're the whipping boys of history, yes. uh, you yes. know, among among with with some other groups as well. But I mean, you know, nobody. The funny thing is, is most of the like hotels in mot or most of the motels anyway uh, in the United States are controlled by who? Indian families. And yep. I mean, and there's a ton of them. Now, all it is, is they, when, when they came over that, you know, they, they got all their, you know, money from the quote unquote old country and everything. And, and like, the, it was a family business that started and it was just something that they were here first to do. And they had the, you know, the money from, from, you know, their families in India to eventually circle back, you know, to, to the families in India. I know uh, about this very well. Yeah. Right. And, I mean, this, and also they come from ahead. the classes or, or castes, you know, or yes. subcasts of people. I mean, um, I, I know I know plenty of, of Indian folks um, grew up around, yeah. you know, a lot in my um, young adulthood and everything and even now. And, um, and a lot of them worked or do work in that industry. And they come from the, the caste or like the type of tribes or, you know, surname of people that back mm -hmm. there do those things they run businesses yes. that's what they do and they come over here and do the exact same thing but if you see it out of context you think oh my god they have some sort of hotel cabal right but but you, the funny thing is nobody's saying that that like indians rule the world right even though <laughs> you know more people than anybody on the planet probably stay in their establishments you know what i mean like uh, it, it was the same thing and i bring this up just to say that like this it's the same thing with the jews like okay do the jews own the entertainment industry uh, that might not be an entirely unfair statement to make but it's only because it's what they did when they came over like it's what they they are the ones that brought water to the desert and 
you know, in Nevada and in California, in the, like in Las Vegas and all these other areas, or not Las Vegas, but like in these areas, in these valleys, you know, near the San Berdus or whatever, um, that they, you know, they ended up like making like these movie industries like that. That's all it was. It's not like it was some kind of grand plan. Um, it's certainly, you know, like the Jewish obsession with the, the entertainment industry, I do think comes out of the fact that no matter throughout history, no matter what the Jews did, they just couldn't have their own country. They could not have their own little dream life traditionally. You know, I mean, modern day Israel, ancient Israel are two separate subjects. But through, you know, thousands of years, they've had nothing. And so what they did was they got all excited about, you know, the concept of fiction. I mean, how many of the golden age science fiction writers are also Jews? You know, it all comes out of this dream of life can be better. And the movie industry, um, you know, and in the entertainment industry as a whole, very much came out of that, out of that attitude of, okay, if we can't have it in reality, we will have it in fiction and we will make fiction so powerful. It will, you know, seem almost as, as reality. Uh, yeah. and, and that's really, you know, that as far as like them controlling, you know, Jews controlling the entertainment industry, that's all that that really comes out of. It comes out of their oppression, not out of their dominance. I um, think part of ahead. it too is, um, you know, America was a very uh, puritanical society yes. in a lot of yes. ways and Jews sure. didn't have the same cultural, um, stigma around like dancing and music and right. fun you know right. and yeah <laughs> yeah all the things that are fun or bad that was what the you know the puritans believed um mm -hmm. and just, just didn't have that same cultural impulse of like you know you have to keep your body very confined you couldn't do anything mm -hmm. that felt good you couldn't dance you couldn't sing you couldn't you know any of these things that the puritans you know um shamed everybody for so right in a lot of the ways, uh, I think that's a, a large part of it, too. Like, I agree with what you said, but this is probably it also is that it's just not in their culture to shun those sorts of things. Yeah. And so they found an outlet for that. And most of the Puritans just didn't want to do that. Like, to give you an idea, and I might have I've probably heard this from somebody else, but Edison thought the only use for uh, records was to dictate to your secretary what you wanted what tasks you wanted done today mm -hmm. that was edison's vision <laughs> for the record player do you see what, what i mean what a feminist that right guy. <laughs> right that's what his that was so in his pure little puritan mind there was just no other way that you could make use this for fun and entertainment you know whereas mm -hmm. you know the jews had a you know correct me if i'm wrong but a long culture of like uh music and and yes. dancing and singing and all that sort of thing so i mean think everybody watched fiddler on a roof when they were a kid you know so yep exactly um so they just it wasn't in the culture of puritan america to make like you know bombastic um very fun uh movies and, and music mm -hmm. and musicals and all that sorts of things so the jews found their niche there not having that like instilled in them you know yeah right. and so, some you know subgroups from you know uh poorer backgrounds and, and, and from lo lower in the class system, not just the Jews like to be bombastic and show off and show, show off their wealth and, and make, and, and make music and sing and dance and things that, 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 that maybe the proper culture shuns or break taboos that, that the proper, the proper culture won't do. But you mentioned filler in the roof and it's like, okay, let's look at who the Jews are. They were immigrating. Um, Jews definitely have been setting down roots and making uh 
doing good for themselves here. But when, when they come over, they coming over dirt poor from the from the um, slums and the villages in the old country. Yeah, they're, they're coming over and, cons and considered they're considered low, low, lower class, dirty, and you, you got to understand it may not be so black and white. But Jews are an ethno religious group, so you, they're an ethnic and uh, you know ethno linguistic and religious group, and mm -hmm. you've got your you know, Orthodox religious Jews, you de definitely got a large segment of people that are lo lower on the class structure and have been for a long time in the old country, but not, but secular, not, not particularly religious. And they come over to a fairly like religiously conservative country, even it's probably, especially at the time on the East coast in the Northeast, um, going back to the history, you know, kind of different than than now and uh they're willing to break a whole lot of taboos and and do a whole lot of uh things that are just considered i mean this is what you hear from like the reactionaries and you know anti-semites now uh, subversive things they did they were actually perfectly fine with subverting the culture because they are they are the secular class of the jews the, the almost like permanent lower class back in their home home regions back in the right. old country back in eastern europe so they um they absolutely did uh start producing all sorts of uh, raunchy comedy you know singing and dancing on stage cursing um mm -hmm. and and making pornography and everything all that that whole thing's yeah. true that whole the whole thing is true because that was a huge taboo that nobody else was willing to do at the time and but there was a tremendous to, demand for like that's the thing thank yeah, them for that you know what i mean yeah right <laughs> Well, it's such a great it's, it's a great argument for multiculturalism, frankly, or, you know, and I know people bristle at that word, but really it's biodiversity of cultures because you had the dominant culture that would rather have records be like like sec brilliantly said, would rather have records be for dictating, you know, notes to a secretary or whatever, instead of it being for James Brown to rock and roll. You know what I mean? And and who wouldn't, you know what would the world be like, you know, without, without rock and roll getting spread on records? Um, so yeah, you, you always want those groups that will break the taboos because that's what keeps pushing us forward. And it's not just the Jews. There's been many, many different groups that have done this over time, but that's the power of multiculturalism is that it keeps things from being stagnant and things not being stagnant, you know, like the ripples in the water is what, you know, allows everything to flow. So yeah, it, it's it's really like again. I think it's a great argument for why you do not want like a monoculture. Why you don't want this just like the singular monolithic way of thinking and doing things. Um, and and I think part of the reason you know the Jews have been able to like be that culture through from the Roman Empire to today, uh, very much. Well, I I would say it, it comes down to that a lot of times. I mean. The way they dress, you know, if they're very orthodox, they would look very different. But many Jews don't look so different from, you know, the predominant culture around them. But yet, at the same time, they still practice a completely alien culture. And because of that, they don't get quashed as easily, you know, within whatever, whatever you know, is the occupying force of the day. And so it's, it's, it's I don't want to call it luck, but it's kind of luck. Because you're totally right, Penguin. Yeah, it's an ethno-linguistic religious group. You know, but it's one that you don't always see right away, but it's right there, you know, and because of that, I think it's one of the things that's allowed it to survive and allowed it to get into doors that maybe others hadn't originally. Um, but all the same, 
all of you know these multitude of cultures you know is what really allows us to keep going forward and to keep questioning you know our belief systems that you know we might hold a little too dearly um and and again that that moves us forward yeah and i mean it's a sure evidence, marketplace of ideas yeah. exactly yeah, there wasn't the evidence of like a vast uh, organized jewish conspiracy you know that would get people up in arms but it's a vastly unorganized you know pseudo conspiracy of people that are you know from the same background they might shake hands and want to make a make a deal with each other and support each other and have in many cases communities when they you know for example came to the country and they had their own their own neighborhoods with their own kind of institutions and stuff and that's right. certainly and i've been told about that all my life I also grew up around a lot of jewish people and um and i was always told you know especially uh, growing up you know kind of in, it was kind of like an admiration of the, of that attitude and the fact that they had each other's back, but yeah, it's because it's it's a completely unorganized kind of again pseudo conspiracy because it's not an organized anything that they are able to have something that kind of has the appearances of kind of uh, you know an organized takeover of all sorts of institutions and industry. Yeah, well, let me. Let, I want to bring up. Um... <sighs> I guess we should bring up the state of Israel while, you know, <laughs> while we're on the Jewish question. Um, and this is something that, you know, I mean, like the state of Israel does, like it, it's authoritarian as they come, you know, and, and it does really hate, really heinous shit. Like, I think I read earlier today that now in, in, in Israel, it's prohibited to, make a cash like transaction under $1,700 or something like that. Um, or, or, or no, or over, maybe it's over $1,700. It can't that, sorry, not, it's the other way around over $1,700. You can't make a cash transaction, which what the hell, you know, <laughs> like that, that's crazy. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to like, is as nice as we're talking about the Jews here, you know, and all of this. And again, I am one, um, you know, I know a lot of people want to instantly bring up, okay, well, all right, that was the past. What about today? We have the state of Israel. Well, I, I mean, I do, I wouldn't mind addressing this. And the thing, what you really have to start with is World War I. Um, also, not, there are so many Jewish groups that are against the state of Israel as it exists today. Like, the state of Israel today was basically a gift, a quote-unquote gift, from the British empire or, you know, from, from the British that's, yeah, you know, like you could say, I, I know, and I mean, and I have, obviously I have tons of family. I have family that even serve in the Israeli defense forces and so on. Um, you know, and they always like to talk about, it's like, yeah, okay. So the British gave us Israel, but you know, during the, the six day war, we earned it, you know, at that point. And I, you know, I can hear where they're coming from, from a conventional standpoint, but, you got to go back to World War One. So, what is the real purpose of World War One? Obviously, it is not because some prince got shot in the back of the head or whatever, you know. And so, the whole world's got to go to war. Like nobody would have fallen for that, you know. If or you know, nobody nobody would have went forward with that if that was the idea. Even though that's where we're constantly, at least in America, that's what we're constantly told is is the reason behind it. Um, I think, and obviously, there's evidence to back up what I'm thinking. I think that it was really about destabilizing the Ottoman Empire. That's what Britain wanted. And that's that's what World War One was all about. Now okay, go on. I like this. Yeah. So because the Ottoman Empire was 
a stabilizing force in that what, you know, at the time, certainly at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, was something that had become so wealthy, you know, seemingly overnight, you know, with oil, other things, whatever. I mean, this is, I'm getting, I'm making it really brief. But yeah, I, I think the evidence stands pretty tall that World War I was about destabilizing the Ottoman Empire. And I think, well, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Just to put this into context for the audience, for you to, for you to. So like, what if um, the oil petroleum economy took off? Cause you know, this was the very beginning of oil being an important resource. Yes. What would happen? This is the very, like very beginning of that stage. What would happen if, if, those oil reserves that we that we know know later very soon after become highly valuable like global resources mm -hmm. came started being tapped and developed and further explored in a world with a, like a intact Ottoman Empire that just I, that oh the Ottoman Empire would become the most powerful you know nation in or you know a political force in the world I mean easily well, yeah yeah. Um, did, did you have more you want to say on that penguin? No, I'm I'm I'm, I'm going along sure. with this as you say it. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you, that's a huge point. Yeah. So then, what happens is you know go to the sequel of World War One, that being you know World War Two, which is really they're just they're the same World War. They just never really stopped. Um, and I think a major thing that's happening there with World War Two is. World War I didn't destabilize the Ottoman Empire enough. You still had a lot of these Arabic countries staying largely under Arabic control, and you know they were still kind of working together. And what would end up happening is, I mean, like even Nazi Germany would recognize, you know, the the power that Arabic countries held at the time in this new world, you know, this new like petroleum-run world, uh, and. So what, what does Britain do after the end of World War II? <laughs> they put, you know, this, this country, they create this country smack dab in the middle of what was the old Ottoman Empire, you know, which is now the state of Israel. Okay. Not, not that Israel was the Ottoman, but you get what I mean. Like they, they create the state of Israel. Ship to, all these people there. Right. And they do this. And, and you got to understand the ideas of putting the, the idea of putting the Jews in some geographic territory was not new. Um, this was being talked about even before the 40s. FDR was saying, okay, we're going to give the Jews Arizona and they can all go there. You know, like that, that or, or I think the other one was Oregon. He was going to send them to like either Oregon or Arizona. And, and it, it, it's the funniest thing when you actually read um, like the letters that FDR was sending around about this, or about the Jewish question, or in his case, I suppose it'd be the Jewish problem. Uh, it, I mean, it, it reads so anti-Semitic, you know, to suggest mm -hmm. that somehow like America was pro-Jewish during World War II, bullshit. Like, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't believe it for a second. Uh, yeah, also because, suggested was um, like Eastern Siberia. They had a right. place for the Soviets had a place. Um, the Chinese had Jew, Jewish um, yes. regions. Uh, Madagascar was a big one. They were just going to give them Madagascar and uh, Uganda. And there's one in South America, too. Right. So you have all these places that would have been, frankly, a far better choice <laughs> than, than putting them in Palestine, especially at that time, after all the, you know, after the, all these wars and every, you know, in the Ottoman Empire, again, being in shambles, you put them right there. Myself, I can't think of anything. I mean, it, it, it feels very much on purpose that the British Empire put that there. And because I mean, look where we're at, there's no way the Ottoman Empire could ever come back 
right now, you know, because of, frankly, the state of Israel. Like, it, it's just so much the troublemaker, you know, in that area, okay? Um, and it's right in the middle. I mean, just even just right. purely geographically, it's right in the middle, cutting off all of the several different regions from each other. Yeah, exactly. Purely cutting off, like, several parts of the, you know, the core Islamic world, right. the, the, you know, the Syria and Lebanon and Levant area, um, the uh, Iraq, the Gulf and the Northern Af Egypt and the Northern Africa. Like there, that's a crossroads where there's this kind yes. of like, you know what I mean? This kind of um, choke point. And, and they, they have that, they own that. Right. And it's an constant turmoil and they and they have a, they have a huge military and they, because of this geopolitical situation there, they have a huge military and a huge security state. Yeah, exactly. And, and a military and security state that is funded, you know, by the United States and, you know, Britain and, you know, plenty of other countries as well that send them foreign aid, which is also ironic because it's a country that really does make pretty good money on its own. You know, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a strange thing. And so, you know, if, if I'm going to get conspiratorial, like the state of Israel isn't there, it wasn't given to the Jews as like, ah, Jews, we feel so bad for you. We're sorry about everything that's been done over the past 2,000, 2,500 years, whatever. Uh, look here, have a country, will you? Okay. And, and just be there and be peaceful. Um, now it feels far more strategic as in, ah, okay, here's, here's the truck, you know, here's Britain saying, here's the troublemaker we can put in there and, you know, and keep like the, you know, the, the, the Arabic forces as it were, the Arabic powers, you know, from, from being a problem again, like they were pre-World War One or during the time of World War One. Um, potentially in the future when exactly we enter. So we enter right after this period of the county of the, uh, the, t the terrorist state, a, uh, you know, a global petro economy. And that yeah. really does take off. I mean, I guess it existed before, but there were sources of petroleum that were kind of like satisfying demand elsewhere and other places in the world that were more accessible. But this is when, you know, the Middle Eastern petro economy becomes relevant. I mean, it was hardly even mm -hmm. known when 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 um, the that, that that kind of industry and those, that kind of machinery became widespread. But but, you, you know, you really don't hear Middle Eastern oil being like strategically important until after the war and after the founding of that state. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, th there's a lot more that can be kind of extrapolated from this. I mean, there's the question around, OK, well, what's Saudi Arabia's role in all this? Because there's, you know, problems there. But um, yeah, just th this notion of the state of Israel, again, like the idea that, oh, like that exists because the Jews ru rule the world. No, no, no. That exists because the British Empire is a bunch of asshats or, you know, because because Britain whatever they they have their their you know colonialist dreams that they've never gotten rid of i don't um, even connect like just like i don't connect i don't equate jews with the i mean in a, in a good way i don't connect jews worldwide mm -hmm. or in the united states with the state of israel i don't connect you know any possibility of like a global jewish conspiracy with the state of israel i mean it, it wouldn't right. even it's a different thing it's, and i think it's exactly what you're describing yeah to me it yeah. kind of says the opposite because so <clears throat> i agree with what you say that the one one reason for World War One was to destabilize the Ottoman Empire. So there was people in, let's call, let's say the Anglo countries, so Britain and America, who thought of the Anglo race. Yes, at the time they thought of the Anglo's as a separate race, um, as superior to all of mankind. They sure. thought that the Germanics were. 
basically mud people to them that the ottomans were subhuman the jews were subhuman so they uh, and there there's writings that and, and evidence if you want to do the research to kind of back me up on this but they <clears throat> wanted the anglo-saxons to rule the world they wanted to reunite you know britain and and U- the U- usa and they were all highly anti-semitic as was most of britain and the united states at the time and the reasons for forming israel were highly semitic it was the reasons we were anti highly anti-semitic it was the reasons we were talking about before that you know mm-hmm. it was these these claims that the the jews they were a, a subversive force they were a people you know a, 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 a fifth column within a state and all of these sorts of things that we should ship them all over there, you know? So they wanted to rid themselves of the Jews in a lot of ways. And most Jews at the time were against this idea, both the Orthodox and uh, Sheldon Richmond has done great work on this, both the Orthodox and to the sort of what you would call the reformed Jews were there who were, you know, um... Hey folks, this is sick. I wanted to tell you about Appalachian apothecary. If you care about taking responsibility for your health, uh, natural and home-based and plant-based medicines, and homesteading and foraging, you should check out Appalachian Apothecary. Now, that's my other half. She goes by resonance in most places. She is a big proponent of... uh, DIY medicines and plant-based medicines. Uh, Everything that she makes is either grown here on the homestead or she forages for it uh, with the little ones. With the exception of uh, the beeswax, which she uses for salves, that we trade for from a a friend of ours, and the olive oil, which she buys. Um, We don't make the olive oil. Uh, she makes salves and tinctures and lots of other home remedies. Um, also pickles and jellies and that kind of thing. Um, she's a trained chemist, if that matters, and she really knows what she's doing. Uh, she's a wizard. My house constantly looks like a mad scientist laboratory. Uh, the current tinctures and salves that she has, she has a mood enhancer. It's St. John's Wort. Elderflower Mimosa, A Woman's Health, Red Clover Tincture. It's a menstrual and menopause issue tincture. An Immune Booster. It's Oregano, oregano Rosemary, and plant, Wild Plantain. She's got a plantain self for bug bites and scratches and cuts. I use that stuff all the time. I work outside. I'm constantly getting bit by bugs and scratched and whatever, and, and it really heals up uh, quickly. She's got a de-stress that's a 50-50 chamomile and lemon balm. Yeah, it's a stress reliever. Calms you down. Uh, goldenrod tincture for allergies. Um, I believe that also works for colds. And coming soon, uh, what stuff she has in the works is fire cider, which is also a great immune bo- booster. That knocks out colds like you wouldn't believe. An usnea tincture for the first signs of a, a cold. Uh, she's getting prepared for cold season, so that's another immune booster. A wild lettuce tincture, uh, and that's a, a pain reliever. Um, also works pretty good, uh, especially for like aches and pains, that kind of pain, you know. 
Um, and she has, you know, has pickles for six bucks, bucks a jar or, um, plus shipping and also jellies, which she's out of right now. And I'm not sure the cost, uh, the prices for the rest of this, um, please reach out to her at, on Twitter at mother of chaos with an X or on telegram. That's radical underscore resonance, R E S O N A N C E. And she can set you up with a price list if you're interested in any of that. And she's also open to barters and trades and that sort of thing. Um, so if you want to support the underground economy and uh, homesteading and foraging and and, and uh, that sort of thing, um, please feel free to reach out to her on any kind of social media. Or if you can't find her, reach out to me. Again, thanks a lot and I hope you enjoy. Peace. More, I guess not secular, but more assimilated into American culture, I guess. Um, I mean, we're all, we're all against this formation of the state of Israel. So this serves, so what you're saying, World War One serves all of these purposes. You have a, um, um, not a reunification, but you have a, um, the United States and Britain both team up. You have, you, they strike down the Ottoman Empire. They put the Germans back in their place. You know, all of these people that the Anglo-Saxons feel are subhuman are now crushed after World War I. Um, and you have uh, America rising as the superpower with UK as its junior, po- uh, junior partner to mm-hmm. essentially colonize the most of the world after that. They don't call it co- colonialization anymore. It's, it's something different. They call it something different now, but... Sure. It's essentially the same thing. We have it's fucking gangster capitalism. They just go around yeah. and say, you know, your fucking brains or your signature is going to be on this contract, you know, or your your government works for us now, or whatever it is, or your resources are are going to American corporations or whatever the thing. <laughs> so they they won, and I think that you're right about the Ottomans, but you're all it played uh, several. Uh, it checked off several boxes. Yes. All at the same yeah. Time. There's never only one reason. Certainly nothing on that sure. scale can yeah. only have one reason. You're totally right about that. Yes. Yeah, right. But it's useful to kind of just pan, pan out and look at, let's, let's look at these events, World War One, World War Two, and all intervening years right before, right after whatever. Let's look at all this um, from this one perspective. And I haven't actually looked at it, at it from exactly. I mean, I've had a lot of these thoughts before individually, sure. but like I never really thought about it all from the perspective of like, the Mideast over that period of time, because you could also say like um, World War One, like they could really, they could really want to have um, the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Habsburgs taken care of too. Obviously, like that's you could look at it from the perspective of 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 dealing with the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and that's obviously that looked a lot different after that war than um, before, and, and right. kind of the same with the uh, Germans, but they weren't finally dealt with. You know, until World War Two, but um, certainly what the German nation and as in terms of the German people were before that period of time and after, because they 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 were spread over, they were spread everywhere from, and they had historically been since the time of the Roman Empire, the, the Germanic people had been spread everywhere from Slovenia to Romania to 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 Schleswig-Holstein. So, um, mm-hmm. and 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 they are no longer for reasons that are obvious, but um. So yeah, it's it's interesting to look at that, and we're not even mentioning like Japan and China and all the things that would happen over there. But you can actually look at just one particular reason and come up with 
whole bunch of stuff that you just wouldn't if you were trying to look at it generally and run it from a global perspective. And there was, there's always a bunch of different people with a bunch of individual biases and, and plans and missions coming together. And, and the confluence is a world war. It, it, it takes a whole bunch of people to, um, to move these giant states and this, to do such drastic things that it yeah. caused millions and millions of deaths. Yeah, I mean, because it doesn't make any sense either. Like, because in the Soviet Union, there was already a what is effectively a Jewish country. It's called the Jewish Autonomous Oblast. Like, yeah, it, it's been around forever. And the like, the national language is Yiddish. Um, I mean, like, if you were looking for a place, like, there was kind of already a place. Uh, but again, like, there was there were, there were a lot of reasons, and I don't think they have so much to do with giant Zionism as people would suggest. But there are a lot of reasons that the state of Israel, you know, would end up getting created. And it had to do, you know, more with the power of, shall we say, the the Anglo uh, Anglo-American Empire than it did, you know, necessarily, um, you know, what what a group of Jews, you know, were wanting, you know, at, at, at the time. Um, I think it's not hard to really kind of explain to people the, the significance of like it's almost pretty obvious. And I've, I've, I think I've thought this on some level for just basically my entire adult life, like sticking the Jews right or sticking the Jewish state, sticking an organized Jewish state right mm -hmm. there, like sticking it, like it was clearly, I mean, we, we all know that it was d done by the British and the European powers and whatnot, but just right. sticking it right there at that time. I mean, it's, it's, it's rather deliberate, especially when you know how many other alternatives that were planned that would, you know, there, sure there's, there has, there's the argument of historical connection, but that's, it's not post hoc justification, but it's certainly justification. Like, like there were plenty viable plans to, to uh, give Jews a viable state where they wouldn't be in constant warfare and, and, uh, and constant like paramilitary warfare nonstop just for forever until there's some greater demographic crisis that, that plays out there or something happens. But until like that does, there, it's, it's that, that region will never be at peace. It's just built into like the constitution in the sense of like the the integral constitution of that group, that state existing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and I, I know then then you get a lot of the questions about, and, and we can get down to another subject if everybody wants to, but, uh, you know, I'll just say quick, I know a lot of people, you know, then want to get into, oh, well, but the Holocaust wasn't real or blah, blah, blah. You know, like people get into this sort of thing. Um, you know, I like here, here, here's the funny thing that even if, and, and, and I think the evidence stands very tall, you know, that the Holocaust occurred, but let's say even if somehow it were faked or something like that, it, it, it's not inconsequential, but it's inconsequential in the sense that that's not the first time that the Jews had experienced the Holocaust. In fact, I think Hitler was, so initially, like when you read Mein Kampf, there are certain countries that Hitler lists off that he wants to be really like brotherly with. Um, of course, the, the whole book opens up with Austria, right? Um, which, you know, would happen very quickly. Um, but then also he originally wanted to, you know, partner with uh, Britain, you know, like they, they wanted to be allies with them. Yes. And they said no. And they became, you know, Britain became Hitler's biggest thorn in his side to, you know, to, to rising to power. And Whatever faction that would be, for, you know, open to that did not went out in Britain anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there you go. Yes. So I think at that point, Hitler essentially just said, OK, I'm going to copy Britain's greatest enemy through history, 
which is Spain. And he was effectively copying like the Spanish Royal playbook. And that's a part of the reason he engaged in his own Holocaust because not, but uh, uh, five, 600 years earlier, that's exactly what the Jews went through in Spain. You had the massacre of 1366. You had the massacre and mass conversions of 1391 uh, that led to massive deaths that nobody debates those. Like nobody says, oh, well, the, those massacres didn't happen in Spain. Oh, oh yes, they did. You know, and, and, and those are, and again, those are just two more in a long list of Holocausts that Jews have had to deal with. And the, like the notion, you know, that some, like what, so the Jews finally made this one up, but they didn't make up the others or like none of it makes a ton of sense. But what does make a ton of sense, I think, is that, yeah, Hitler was really just like copying this playbook, you know, uh, of, of how to beat Britain. And he was copying like like Spanish history for a few hundred years, basically. Yeah, funny thing, uh, anti-Semites love pointing out the other the other massacres and expulsions, um, forced conversions, whatnot. They love pointing out that the the narrative the Jews were forever a, a subversive race of people, and that's why they were expelled from over a hundred countries and whatnot and everything. Mm -hmm. so this one, you're like, this one is totally not real because, and I, honestly, like, I can't point to anything that's a direct, actual, like, direct result of the Holocaust that couldn't have happened through other means, especially the narrative that we're laying out here. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, I think it, again, it happened. Um, but yeah, it, it's just th this idea that like a people you know, were, are like constantly creating and because this is how far this could, this conspiracy theory will go is, you know, like they, they're just constantly, they've, they've been in power for such a long time and they're constantly creating these, these scenarios. Um, no, I mean, we just, we have tons of evidence to show that, no, they, they didn't create them and they genuinely were, they, they've just been an oppressed people for that long. Um, but anyway, so <laughs> just, just putting that out there. Unless, unless like a ton of history is, um, contrived. Unless it's all lies. Yeah. yeah. Which, uh, you know, I guess anything could be, but this is, this one doesn't seem to be a prime candidate for that. Sure. I'm pretty sure the Holocaust happened, but I'm, I might be convinced that Hitler didn't die of a gunshot in the bunker. Oh, I'm with you there. Like, he went off in a UFO? No. <laughs> well, there's also that. I mean, maybe they're living in Antarctica right now. I don't know. But Oh, yeah. No, I'm open. Oh, I, I think there's enough evidence that Franco got him out. Franco, mm -hmm. who was... Spain was neutral at the time, but was also a fascist. And they had already, with the Catholic Church, by the way, had established lines to get like high level Nazi, like tons of high level Nazis out of Germany at the time and yeah. sent them mostly to South America. Correct. And whoever didn't go to South America that, you know, the, they, the Americans brought over here or the Russians brought over there and that became the space program. So, or, or, they, or they were the uh, secretary general of NATO. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, um, I don't know, but I, I don't, I don't, I think there's quite a bit of evidence that he didn't die in the bunker. I don't know what route he would have taken out. Of. I've read some kind of narrative narratives and descriptions of people's like trying to get out in the last days before the, the, the downfall. It might just be Wikipedia articles, but I, I, I don't know. I find the idea of fascinating. Like who are the last people that got out of Berlin at that time? I'm sure I've just like perused a couple of Wikipedia articles, but like, I'm not sure what route you would take to avoid um, getting captured by one of the armies or the other because they had they were coming in from every direction. But I, I guess some people did up to... Yeah, you got to fly out at night. Yeah. Basically, yeah. I mean, um, so the, the, okay, so the evidence that he died in the bunker is 
some Russian soldier, actually the first evidence that he is dead came over German radio. It was the Germans announced that he was dead. So if you want to believe Nazis who had a reason to who have no reason to tell you the truth, uh, right. then that's, that's who made the claim first. And then some Russian soldiers said they dug up a body somewhere near there that said it looked like Hitler. Um, and they had his body for a long time and his body was never the, um, the body they tested later, like years and years, long after the fall of the Soviet Union. It wasn't even that long ago, uh, was a female and was not the DNA didn't match Adolf Hitler. And the blood on the couch that was in the bunker also didn't ma- uh, match uh, Hitler, Hitler or Ava Brahm. So that was all of the evidence to to support the claim that he did bu- die in the bunker and none of it was true. Um, right. So, and there's a lot of, I mean, then there's like the circumstances they, they did get out a lot of high. I mean, Hess was in South America for decades. I mean, they just found him oh. not long ago. So, no. well, I mean, if Joseph Mangala, yeah, Mangala, yeah. I, I mean, mean and, and he died just of old age in 79, you know, yeah. in Brazil, like, if you can get him out, there's no reason you can't get Hitler out. Yeah. Right. right. And he had Franco, um, who had yeah. uh, what they called the rat line. And um, he had a, a lot of connections in, in South America. And it wasn't that far of a plane ride to, to get to Spain. Um, so, yeah, uh, it doesn't seem to me to be out. The, and also, you got to think of the politics of the time. So, like, the American government had all the incentive in the world because they were already preparing for a war with Russia. Yes. Right. So the war against Germany was lost. Um, they thought the next war was going to be with Russia. Um, a lot of people made the claim that they didn't think Hitler was dead and the FBI looked for him for 40 years in, in, um, in South America. But um, I mean, uh, they, if they wanted Eisenhower to, they what he didn't think he was dead. Yeah. They, they would have, uh, you know, immediately rearmed uh, Germany and just kind of got, got those troops i mean i think that was part of the plan was to was to rearm the captured german troops and have them fight alongside americans to fight the the russians and possibly the other half of germany i i don't know because similar things have happened in other conflicts like we talked about oh yeah the, operation gladio uh, is is full of that army oh, no, fascist but yeah. also immediately like immediately as germany was falling just keep i think Patton wanted to just to keep going oh yeah which yeah, he just wanted, oh, which, so is, which is actually insane at the time. Yeah, so that's why they needed they needed a uh, conclusive victory. They needed okay, Hitler's dead. That's done. You know what I mean? Like they needed that done. They didn't need to be chasing Hitler around the world, at least not in public. They were doing that. The FBI was doing that afterward, but um, they needed that war to be done so they could prepare for war with Russia, which ended up being mostly a cold war. But um, I think that all the political incentives were just. I, I don't know if they like I don't I'm not saying they like outright made it up, but like they got some like half assed bullshit report and they're like, Yep, that's good enough for us and just fucking went with it. You know what I mean? So I don't know. Uh, well, they needed the they needed the loose end tied up. I mean, that was yeah. just not something we wanted. You know, you think about it, you put yourself in that position and it's just not something you want to continue dealing with. Like what happened where's Hitler? What happened to Hitler? We got and we've got we've got the Russia question basically going on. Not to mention all the other global impacts of like the war and that eventually happened, the ripple effects on the colonies and, but especially the Russia question and the the nuclear, the whole nuclear thing, 
America has the bombs, and Americans and the Russians have the bomb, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, do, do you guys do, do you want to go a little crazy with this? <laughs> yes. Yes. Are you I guys do. Down this? All right. So yeah, yeah. Here, here, wait, I just want to say we just spent like a ton of time, way longer than I thought of talking. Thought we would <laughs> talking about the Jewish question, just for the yeah. Record. All but right. I, I think that was good. I was I'm I'm glad to get that out there um, for for a bunch of reasons. I know we had other things we wanted to talk about, but but since we're on this train, let's keep riding it. Let's ride it all the way to Poland, okay? And are you guys familiar with Deglaka? Do you know yeah. what this oh, is? Oh yeah, the bell. Yeah, Sounds yeah, familiar. the bell. Okay. Oh, yeah, from so um, here we go. Video games is that Wolf is that Wolfenstein? Oh yeah, no. I think I think that it, they're they are in Wolfenstein games. But are it's they a real really? Thing. Cool. Yeah. yeah. All right. Cool. Um. Anyway, so so Deglaka. Like going. I like. Yeah. Yeah. Going. Yeah. So Deglaka was this theoretical, like anti gravity or time machine ex- experiment that was being worked on by the Nazis in Poland. Now Deglaka just translates to it means the bell. Um, it's been covered. I, I've seen it covered on TV more recently. Uh, actually, so I don't. How do you guys feel about the show Ancient Aliens? Like pro or against or neutral? Neutral. Okay. Also neutral. Yeah. I think it's the first fun, couple but, eh. right. It's fun. The first couple seasons, I felt like they were actually like trying, you know, like they like they actually had opposing parties in. And so it was a lot more interesting to watch at that time. Um, you know, I mean, now if somebody asked me, I'd say, no, just watch in search of with Leonard Nimoy in the 70s, you'll have a better time. But um but there's a there's an episode in season two of Ancient Aliens that's all about Nazi Germany and kind of like you know alien their attachment to some kind of ancient aliens or anything like that. And they do cover Deglaka in that. Um, I think that episode it's like 45 minutes. It's some of the best, mo- at the very least, most entertaining 45 minutes you could ever watch. Like it's it's really really brilliant um, in what it lays out. Whether all of it's true or not is a whole other conversation. But it definitely gets your gets your creative juices flowing. Um, anyway, so they do cover, they do cover De, uh, De in that, but De Glocka was discussed obviously long before then. And it was again, like something was being worked on in Poland. You can even go to like where De Glocka was supposedly being worked on. And it is a structure that looks like it could house, um, exactly what they're describing. Um, the weird Stonehenge thing. Almost. Yes, exactly. It does. Yeah. It, it looks like Stonehenge. Um, Anyway, so this is being worked on by like the SS, you know, it's a super top secret project, which of course there are plenty of these in the history of Nazi Germany. Um, I mean, they were laying out plans for space stations, all kinds of things, you know, and this would lead really, you know, like a lot of these plans being, you know, discovered would frankly lead to a lot of the more wilder uh, like pulp magazine fiction stories of the time of, you know, space Nazis and whatever. And eventually you'd even make a movie like Iron Skies or something like that. Um, but Deglaka, so where, where that gets interesting is it's one, it was being developed. It existed. It's gone. Like it's not there anymore. So where did it go? And part of the argument for it, of where did it go, is that it could actually time travel uh, or go into space and that, Various aspects of the Nazi aristocracy, you know, went in it and went up or went off or went into the, you know, um, somewhere else in time, even. It's a really far out idea. I mean, but, you know, I, I, me, I just let it go 
if I just be like, okay, well, it's an experimental Nazi craft, nothing too crazy about that, whatever. But the interesting thing is you end up with what's known as the Kecksburg UFO incident, which happens in like winter of 1965. I want to say it was like in December or something that this occurs. And what happens is there's this fireball that gets reported by it's seen in multiple states in the United States, but it ends up landing in Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. When it lands there, the people that go and see it, they describe it looking like a walnut, which is really an upside down bell. And like, there's even um, like, they've put up a model there, you know, just, just depicting what people described of it. I'm now, sorry. When was this? What's it? Sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. When, when was this? This was in 1965 that this happens, right? So they're describing an object that fits the description of de Glocka to a T. And what gets weirder is people in Pence in Kecksburg said that they saw people walk out of this crashed craft and they said they were wearing Nazi uniforms. Now that's fucking weird, right? (laughs) Like that's... Cool. <laughs> See that that that's the thing that like kind of blows my mind because again, you could just write off the Glocka like okay again it was just something that they had blah 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 and maybe got destroyed or who knows maybe the U.S. Uh, put it in a big warehouse next to the Ark of the Covenant or something you know Indiana Jones style. Um, but then when you get this independent report at a time when probably the conversation around the Glocka I mean like UFOs were just becoming a thing but the conversation around the Glocka. I don't think was in the popular consciousness as to where now, thanks to ancient aliens, it would be um, for people to independently see this. And then also for those claims of Nazi soldiers coming out uh, that, that adds a, an interesting bit of evidence, you know, to the whole thing. Um, and I guess would suggest that maybe it was a time traveling, you know, maybe Hitler landed in, Kecksburg in 1965. I don't know, you know, uh, but I'm definitely open to considering, like you brought up earlier, Sec, you know, considering that we, you know, the United States basically brought over all the Nazi scientists, you know, and a lot of Nazi technology and basically just. And we're back. Hitler lives in Pennsylvania. Yeah, Hitler's in Pennsylvania. (laughs) Yeah. um, So, well, I was saying that. You know, like the American space program, again, basically just took technology from Nazi Germany, ripped the swastikas off and just put an American flag on it. You know, it's it's all very much Nazi technology. And so the idea that, you know, like Nazis had some really advanced tech, uh, I don't think it, like I don't think that's that's a I don't think that's a bridge too far for anybody to think. You know, the idea that it's time traveling technology. OK, you know, maybe that that's that's pushing things. But the very independent report of what happened in Kecksburg does really make me wonder, you know, did, did, the, did a lot of the, you know, Nazi powers, did they go up instead of, you know, uh, metaphorically down? Uh, okay. So what about the, um, since I'll, I'll go play along with this. What All about right. the whole thing with um, Antarctica, the mission to Antarctica, I think like 46 or seven or operation something. Hydra. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. What, um, what was that? Because, uh, I've read some accounts of that, and it could be, you know, just this kind of urban legend type of deal. But I believe they were supposed to be sourced from like official U.S. Do- military documents or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that gets into I. Oh, 
I'd have to read back up on a little bit of this, but my understanding was that at the time, and what gives that some validity that they did like that at least some of, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the Nazis, you know, the ones in power, like that they ran off to Antarctica. There was a point where the United States sent like a naval fleet down there and nobody ever really explained why. Um, I'd have, to, I'd, I'd have to look up on that, but I'm pretty it open. The training exercise or something, right? That, yes, exactly. Yeah, it was like a huge, like battalion, like just a ton of ships and whatever. Not something you would send for exploration or an exercise. But yeah, it's hard to believe. Go ahead. We're talking about actual Antarctica proper, though, right? Because I've actually read a lot on Wikipedia about Antarctica too, because I think it's really interesting to hear yes. about people making it to Antarctica fairly early on. Um, and it's not something you just do. You, you don't just kind of mosey to Antarctica, you know. Oh, <laughs> logistics involved. It's very, very rough seas and weather. I mean, you don't just kind of just sail on down there and just do a little cruise. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, Antarctica in itself is is a big, I mean, there's a lot we could talk about with that. Um, just because of, of things discovered over, over time. Like pyramids under the ice, Brian. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> or that giant door, you know, that, that yeah. everybody talks about. About that a satellite. There's a picture. lot of cool things with Antarctica. I'll tell you that. Never, yeah. Door. Yeah. But, um, but uh, I mean, yeah, it's land. It's not. Mm -hmm. It's not the Arctic Ocean. It is land. And one day we might be. We, we might be in there in the future. I don't know about the past, but in the future, if the world is warming up, um, Antarctica will be a full-on continent in the sense that we can like live on it and not um, die of exposure, you know, at any time by being there. Yeah, I mean, hopefully we don't find Nazis if we do, <laughs> you know. But but I'm not I'm I'm not opposed to that. They also ran off there. I mean, because again, the idea that they went off to South America, I don't think that's even controversial to say anymore. Um, and because we have plenty of them that did, you know, were they engaging in any kind of operations there? You know, like any kind of mobilization? Um, you know, certainly that was a plot point for an episode of the A Team. I don't know if it's real, but. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, a lot of this, there's, there's so much, um, there's so many questions and so much inconsistencies and in a lot of the stories around the end of world war two, uh, that, yeah, I mean, some of these things do seem like they could be very possible, even though I get it that Deglaka, like that's a whole other realm of science that you'd have to talk about and you know, like or a whole other realm of physics, um, you know, or, or them going off to Antarctica and finding who's, who knows what, you know, uh, yeah, I don't know if I buy time travel. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. You're traveling through time-space continuum, and you're just happening to end up on the Earth's surface in a different year. It just seems like it's – how do you get that precise? I mean, the Earth is moving like thousands of miles an hour. I don't I, I don't know. It. Maybe it was a spaceship, and they just happened to come back down. Right. Because it was only just like – Just having a crash. Yeah, it was only, what, 20 years later, you know? So Yeah, yeah. You know, could have been, been, been more of that. And, and cryogenic, uh, I don't know. Yeah, who knows? This brings me to my next, the, the, another thing that I wanted to talk about. So, sure. like the word believe or belief. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. um, and the way that people interpret it, interpret these things. So, like in other episodes, I've, I've made this statement, like, I don't believe this. And it sounded like a cop out. But so, here's what i mean when i say i don't believe this what do you you think that i believe this is not true 
right? That's what generally people think. Like if I say, I don't believe in Santa Claus, people will generally think that you think he does not exist in like right. the affirmative. But that's not necessarily like what the word actually means. And this is the problem with like language also. It's like mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff we've talked about, I don't technically believe. And what I what that word means is like the word believe means you're absolutely sure and have enough evidence that XYZ thing is true. Right. Now, I don't believe anything. Like literally, I like <laughs> I'm I'm not even I mean it's, it sounds crazy, but I don't believe in anything because like I okay, so I probably I deal in probabilities and possibilities, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I am probably sitting here talking to the two of you in a chair. That's the most likely, but I could be in a brain. I could be a brain in a vat. Uh, Descartes would would describe it as like a, you, I could be in a dream right now, and demons are just uh, making this dream happen and making it seem very very real. That was Descartes' kind of play on this, right? So like, I don't believe that we I am right here, but it is the most likely possibility, right? Same thing with like Nazis in Antarctica. When I say I don't believe, and we we need more words because when yeah. you say that word, when you say I don't believe something, like I don't believe in God. <laughs> this doesn't mean that I believe that there is no God, right? And I don't. It believe it's that I lack the amount of evidence to and ability to discern that this is absolutely true right so people assume that when you use the word believe you're you're either like if you say i don't believe they assume that you um believe it to be absolutely not true or if you say i do believe this to be well i don't i just don't usually use that word mm-hmm. um or i mean another another thing i was thinking about is like well, I don't like if I say I don't believe that, but I accept it as a possibility. Most people assume that you think that, that is bullshit. You're just kind of patronizing somebody, right? Like if right. I say to you, "Well, I I don't believe that, but I'll accept it as a possibility." You think I'm just bullshitting you? Like, no, I literally mean that in the very exact sense. And we need other phrases to describe things that you could potentially have some that you potentially have some probability uh, some um thought that these could probably be true or more likely or we need more precise language that we just don't have you get what yeah, i'm saying yeah yeah i'm trying to interject because this is kind of a little bit of a uh, little bit of a tangent is that like in, in the in the islamic religion especially like in in an english-speaking sense or in, in a non-arabic sense um which is, you know, obviously English being my first language and not really particularly, I don't really speaking Arabic outside of like the religious context for the most part. Um, there's this idea of like, um, you know, obviously believers and also belief and everything. And that's a word with, in, in, with its variations, just like in English. And then there's a concept of like uh, disbelief and disbelievers and stuff. And, um, you know, in, so people always often talk about, you know, this passage of the Quran or something says, this is this about the disbelievers and God hates the disbelievers and do this, do this or that to the disbelievers and everything. But actually when you, um, you know, being kind of religion that value, values the, uh, 
you know, value, values the currency of his scripture and everything in, in the original text, word for word, and in the original language, Arabic. Um, the actual word for disbelief and to disbelieve and disbelievers is actually a completely different word than the belief, the word that's translated for belief. And there's just no English equivalent that both that isn't just disbelief because it's actually uh, to believe is actually like, I guess, basically etymologically equivalent enough for the English word, you know, believe or belief or believer. Mm -hmm. But um, the word for disbelief is etymologically comes from um, this is getting really that technical, but etymolo etymologically comes from to cover up. And it actually means to actively like oppose, to actively disbelieve, and not just to not believe. And it's and it's like that distinction is actually very big, it's very important, you know, religiously in the, in the practical sense and like theologically, but um, it's just kind of a linguistic quirk that that mm -hmm. that to disbelieve or to be a disbeliever is to act to actively oppose said beliefs, you know, to, to, and, and, and possibly to even try to squash them. But, but at the very much, it's not a passive, I should say it's, so it's an active thing. It's not a passive lack of belief. Yeah. It's, it's the non-stamp collector, right? <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. English, English lacks a distinction that kind of makes sense or that it's a, you know, it's a word and common enough currency to kind of use in this context because um, so it, it it renders a lot of, you know, it's one of those things that if you're not in the know, it, it's it's it seems like a minor point, but it's actually a huge, huge theme if you're trying to kind of uh, examine the religion in, in English context or a non-Arabic context. Yeah, I think that's a penguin that that was a really fascinating. Like, I, I totally, totally grok what you're saying there about like that, that disbelief in the Arabic sense, or depending upon the context of, of scripture, you know, is saying, you know, saying that it's an active, like actively against believers, you know, well, as compared to, means to cover up. Right, to, right. To, cover, to, yeah. to actually kind of tie to basically squash belief and squash the religion, which, you know, when you, when you look at the history of, of, of the time of the, mm -hmm. the prophet blesses upon him, that's what people were doing. And that's kind of, the context of most of these these verses were people trying to cover up a very nascent and very vulnerable group, a religious group of people that yeah. could have been wiped out at any time. That's kind of the, the whole compelling story, the whole compelling narrative of the of the Quran and the biography and and the, the um, story surrounding it. Yeah, I I think the English language has quite a few problems. I mean, one of the best things we have, you know, to to kind of like to kind of. Uh, uh, to not lose so much of that in translation is the word non. Uh, in fact, we were talking about this before in a previous Into the Void, I think, um, where like, you know, most people think when they think of rational, they think the opposite is irrational. When actually there's such a thing as non-rational, right? There's mm. So there's rational, non-rational, and irrational. Non-rational isn't irrational. It's just not rational, you know, which, but again, most people don't don't get that. And it really speaks to, you know, again, like you ask people, of course, here's a classic Christian question. You know, you ask people, what is truth, right? What makes something true? Most people don't know. And actually, this goes well beyond, you know, English-speaking countries. But but most people really don't even think about that question. You know, like, so, so believing is accepting something as true or that you, you hold it as an opinion, perhaps. But, like, you feel... Often it can be a phrase that means you're feeling pretty sure of the truth of something. Um, but then what is truth? And again, most people really 
really don't know. Now, in, I guess we'll say Western, you know, culture um, or Western philosophy and Greek philosophy and, you know, things that outcrop from that, as well as others, it's really not just Greek philosophy. Um, but the common definition of what truth is, is what's called the, um, oh, wow, it just left me. Anyway, <laughs> but it's justified true belief, but it's the, uh, uh, oh, man, I hate it when that I don't happens. Even yeah. That's okay. Is it a Greek word? What's that? It's not, no, it's, it not, it's, it's not a Greek oh. term. Um, oh, correspondence. That's the word I'm looking for. It's cor the correspondence theory of truth. So, which basically means that truth is relational. When other people, like say, say the glocka comes down. Okay. So how do you know that you saw the bell come down and crash in Pennsylvania? Because you saw it, but then also other people claim to have seen the same thing. And that is the consequence, or that's the correspondence theory of truth that like it corresponds with other, you know, uh, uh, other witnesses. And the witnesses also could be the trees, you know, that the trees are bent down and, you know, whatever else. Okay. But generally it comes down to a relational aspect to your surroundings, whether that's people or something else. That's how you find out. That's how you know something is true. The problem is we often forget that truth can be relational. And the reason we forget that isn't even because we don't, or most people don't know what truth, like how we come to knowing something is true in the first place. The reason is that word that I just said, I-S, is. The problem, and, and I think, Sec, I've heard you say this before. Of course, it's a classic saying from Alfred Korzybski, and that's the map is not the territory. Um, yep. And we, we generally forget because we use like such definitive terms like is that are conjugates to be, we, we often use terms that talk of things as if they are fact when I, I mean, I do think there are objective facts. I do think there's an objective truth. I know there might be disagreement on this panel here <laughs> about that, but, um, Many things are relational. For example, I mean, the, you know, the example I give often is to me, um, a Miata is a small car. To a five-year-old, a Miata is not a small car. But when, if I say it's a small, it is a small car, that's a statement of fact, but it's a fact only to me. It's not a fact to the five-year-old. The five-year-old sees it, you know, just relationally completely different. And so this is one of the big problems we run into when we're describing like belief and truth and describing really anything is, ironically, I'm saying is because it's just such a part of our language, part of the English language, is that we, you know, we have forgotten that, that a lot of what we experience in reality, in existence, what, what we experience uh, is actually relative you know, subjective isn't even the term that I would use. It's more, it's, it's relative. Um, what we accept as truth comes based on what we've often heard from others. What, uh, we, you know, what we see and, and what we experience comes down to, you know, like who we are. Um, you know, are you tall? Are you short? Are you this? You know, like your, your entire reality, it's, I would argue it's still an objective reality, but the way you would describe it is completely different. And this is where everybody, I think, a lot of times get confused and where strong terms like believe and others 
can become a problem, like Sek is saying, because they they will lose the re, the relational aspect of the truth that you're describing, or, or that, that or that you believe, or they're they're. Do, do you guys get what I'm saying? Do, do you have any questions on that or thoughts? No, I think that I think that's a, a great point. I think, um, I mean, that's <clears throat> all of the universe and reality is relative to everything else. That's how we would describe mm-hmm. our not only our now natural world but the universe itself. So that's why it's very hard to nail down definitions or be a hundred percent universally sure or sure of some truth, you know, or or any of these things because they are very well relative is the right word, re- relational to like you know, like you said with the big car. Well, you know, compared to what, and that's a, that's the um, you know the Earth is a big planet. Well, compared to what. You know what I mean? Right. So it's um, so lots of these things are uh, it's very hard to pin down um, definitions. And um, I it, the again, the um, English language is very limiting in. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, I mean, it's not because the definition means what I say means or what uh, the definition is what I mean when I say that word. But right. Culturally I mean, speaking, that word means something very different to lots of different people. You know, yeah, what I, mean? I think so that it's the culture. Yeah, but I think language is is limiting. English has a huge vocabulary, and I think language itself is limiting. Like a language is going to have to have certain connotations and meanings. It can't. I mean, you can't construct a language that has like a word for everybody's conceptualization of every concept. So I, I think even having to use language and have words mean something that has the same like denotations and connotations generally to other people to be useful to like communicate ideas. I mean, it's limited that way because a language can't have every single function that you might can, you might ever imagine ever needing to describe something that you haven't even maybe even made the attempt to describe yet. Yeah. Because it would be an endless language. I mean, yeah. like it'd go on forever, and you would never be able to think because you'd just be constantly coming up with new words, you know. Um, and and I think and, and your your point is totally on penguin. Um, I mean, something that I'm a staunch supporter of, even though I don't really use it in my work. Um, I'd love to change that whenever I have more time in life. But uh, I'm a huge supporter of the language E prime, which is basically just English, getting rid of the conjugate to be. It's getting rid of is. It's getting, you know, it's getting rid of these terms that create the confusion or create the the illusion, I guess I should say, that that create the illusion that something is a fact as to where if you kept language without using terms like is and some others, you could actually, you would, you would hear the relational uh, aspect of what someone was describing to you. So that way, you know, when you eliminate those words, and, and I really, if, if, if this is the first time people have heard about E-prime, totally go and read about it. Like, it'll, it'll blow your mind um, when you do. And, you know, like, if you implement that, you don't have to constantly come up with new terms. I still think, Sec, I still think you're totally right. We got to come up with new terms, like, that, that say something other than I believe, you know, or, or this is a fact or whatever. Like, there needs to be new terms for that. I'm totally with you. Um, my brain doesn't even work that way in terms right. of like 
believe or di- or disbelieve my brain it's like it's a ma- it's a gradient scale do you know what i mean mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. <clears throat> when i think about things <laughs> it's i mean you don't want to get inside my head it's a jumbled mess but it's a a, a matter of like um probabilities you know what i mean mm-hmm. like it's mm-hmm. uh po- you know possibilities and probabilities like it's possible right now that the molecular 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 structure of the chair I'm sitting in could vibrate in such a way that I could fall through the chair. If all the atoms vibrated in a specific way at a specific time, I would fall through the chair. This is a mathematical possibility. Right. It is fucking seriously unlikely that this will happen. Yeah. But it's it's a, it's a possibility. You know what I mean? Or, or I could float in, in the air right now if the atoms uh, align correctly. Mm-hmm. So. These are all possible. This is how I think about most things. Then from there, it's like, to what degree of probability is this accurate? Right. Right. I'm still not thinking in my head uh, as things are absolutely true or not. Mm-hmm. Right. Or true, absolutely true or absolutely false. I still don't think of th- things like that. And to me, that's, that's almost self-limiting. Right? Like, even if I did think that way, it's it's that would be very like self limiting as as to what the um, what you are capable of, and also what mysteries there are in the universe, or what um, what um, what exists beyond you know kind of our reality, or or yeah, or, or what consciousness is. All of these things, like to think of things as like absolutely true or absolutely false, to me is is like a a box you know things are always absolutely true or absolutely false until they're not you know what mm-hmm. i mean until we surpass those things and now you know it was 100 or 200 years ago it was absolutely true that birds flew and men didn't you know what i mean yeah, right. so like um so to me it's it, for me it's all it's it all boils down to probabilities and there's actually i mean this is kind of the way scientists think also and at least uh when you get into like physics and stuff you know what i mean like they're mm-hmm. Because at a certain point, like, uh, I know you hate quantum physics a little, but uh, when you get to a certain point, like, you cannot observe a thing without changing its course. Right. So you just have to, like, what is the mathematical pr- probability that this tiny particle will be at this destination at this time doing this speed or whatever? Mm-hmm. You just have to do, like, well, it's a, like a... 80% probability it'll be there. If we look at it to prove ourselves true, it's going to change its course and we won't know. We won't ever know. So that's kind of how I think about all of reality and all the wacky stuff that we talk about and all of these things. Like I don't necessarily believe them, but to varying degrees of probability, do I think they're accurate or less so or more so, you know? Right. Yeah, I can hear. Well, you know, I'll, I'll say this much. I understand. I feel like I understand you a lot better now, Sick. I mean, I always, you know, I always understood what you're saying, but like now I know where, like some of the ideas I've experienced from you, you know, over time. Um, now, I, now I see where those are coming from. And and I think that that way of thinking, I, I think it's beautiful. I mean, as uh, as discombobulated as you must, as you must be all the time. <laughs> I think it's a beautiful yeah. way of thinking. Uh, My head because, won't ever shut the fuck up. Right, right. But you're like, you're in a state of always questioning, which, you know, certainly speaks to why you are who you are. Um, you know, and I, and I mean that as a compliment, of course. Um, well, thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, do you, well, let me ask you this sec. And then I, I do want to ask, I want to ask Penguin something. Um, and I know we've been going for a while, so we probably want to wrap up soon, but, um, but like, do you hold anything as axiomatic? Do you hold anything as an axiom as in this is self-evident, this is a truth or is there, there is no like absolute objective truth. I don't think there's any, uh, well, no. So I don't know. Nah. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, it does not serve me to think of things in, in terms of absolute truth because right. I can't, I, I can't know for sure that there is absolute truth or objective reality or an objective universe. <clears throat> it also doesn't, um, it, look, it doesn't, I can't, I can't prove that. Sure. I don't know. And it doesn't serve me to, um, to hold like absolute acts uh, truth axioms. Now there's certain generalities that mm -hmm. I've come to adopt that I find beneficial for me and my mm -hmm. unique and the people I care about. And, you know, like, uh, in terms of like, um, ethics, you know, like, mm -hmm. so these things seem to serve me, so I will continue, um, to use them, but, right. um, no, not really. No. Nope. Okay. And, and there's nothing wrong. I used to be rather, uh, years ago, I was very Randian and like objectivist. And then yeah. at a certain point, like, so there's the, <clears throat> excuse me, there's the, you know, law of non-contradiction within sort of objectivist thought. And at sure. a certain point, like I removed all the objections to the point where, uh, sorry, I removed all the contradictions to the point where I removed objectivism. Yeah. Yeah, so, you, you ran into the is ought problem and yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that left me with that left me with a with nothing, but it's a creative mm -hmm. nothing, you know. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and in, in, in Randianism, I mean, of course, you know, she has the three axioms like identity and others. Um, mm -hmm. so that's totally axiomatic. Uh okay. No, I, I again there's there, there's no wrong answer to this, um, because it is a very personal thing. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So Penguin, let me ask you. Uh, what do you consider the Holy Quran to be axiomatic? Like, is that a self-evident truth, that book and what it espouses? Hmm. Well, uh, the overall belief is that, um, yeah, it's, it's the direct word of God. And then it comes down to the narrative around that. Mm -hmm. So that there is like a, you know the story of the prophet and everything and remember this is 1450 years ago this is a this is in the context of like a period of like recorded history this is early right. based corresponding with early medieval europe so we're not talking about you know four thousand years the flood and stuff like that um <clears throat> and um a time people also had very still had really um powerful uh mem memories and long-term memories and stuff but um mm -hmm. anyway um yeah, so the, the narrative around that is that, uh, you know, these verses just started being recited by the, the prophet. And um, after, I mean, originally to a very small number of people, the very first few. And, and this, you know, he narrated only to his, his, his wife, Khadija, you know, what right. happened when he was the, the highly traumatic experience of, of encountering an angel, um, Angel Gabriel. Mm -hmm. um, and everything, but, but besides that story, it's once once it was established that he was a prophet, and this took was over the course of a few years. He really had it really slowly um, uh, 
led into it because it was just so psychologically traumatic for him to to encounter that um as it would be for i think you know you know anybody um the story is that he that these verses just started appearing out of nowhere and just contained it, it so it contained knowledge that it doesn't seem that you know he would have had access to through through books or through you know bingo yes tra- long, traveling traveling abroad and learning from right. numbers of people and the l- kinds of verses and the amount of verse that w- wasn't characteristic of you know his background and his level right. of reading and stuff like that and there was there is a lot of there's a lot of the narrative that deals with specifically that so because of the narrative that kind of mm-hmm. that's part of the story of how this is the direct word of god and then, yes. then the memory aspect of it comes from i you know i just got to have a good memory but um people had people had me- ways of memorizing you know long amounts of verse and oral histories just because of the uh because it wasn't a highly literate society and he wasn't a, he wasn't illiterate or barely literate if at all man he was a merchant but he wasn't illiterate in the sense of educated or learned person yes time where most people weren't and that is the kind of that's the kind of narrative background and because of that i mean that it, it is attested to that this was truly a phenomenal thing so we do say that you know and that no word was changed and then there's the the story of you know, whether no word was changed from here or there and it largely seems like that's that's possible, especially after a certain point. So, okay. So you, so then what, what caused you? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I mean, and if you can put it, you know, kind kind of like, like package it, you know, kind of briefly, like what caused you to say that I believe the book, of the, the Holy Quran? Yeah. Um, like, very, what very did that for you? It is sound. It's, it's just an in, the religion seemed interesting. It sounds, it's a compelling and just powerful sounding there, um, powerful sounding set of verses or collection of verses, but also that narrative that goes along with it. It's not written down there, but mm-hmm. the narrative, the exterior narrative of, of the context of where it came from and right. how it just appeared right. is pretty phenomenal and is attested by lots of different people and of course you yeah. know i'm in the same place and from the same sources and ended up following the same religion that's true but mm-hmm. it, you know there's a there's actually a huge background narrative to to where this came from and it doesn't seem mm-hmm. to likely came from anywhere that you know people didn't there's no evidence that that this could have came from anything else that was attested to in the prophet's life. right yeah. So, so here's, so here, here's, here's, here's where I'm going with this. And I appreciate you sharing all that. And, and I completely understand where you're coming from because I, I ran into the same exact thing uh, a long time ago. Basically you had sufficient evidence for something that couldn't possibly be, but there it was in this case, you know, the, in this case, say it's the Holy Quran. It's it's how that it's the context of how this thing came into existence. Maybe even not so much what it said, like you were saying, but like the fact that here is something that just should not be. There's no way this guy could have done this, but he did it anyway. And there's plenty of evidence to say that he did. So, for me, where like what comes off as, I mean, there's the correspondence theory of truth, like we were talking about earlier. For me, where truth comes in, when when something really hits me as like truth. And I'm totally open to, to sec disagreeing with this, you know, be, being the discordian that he is. <laughs> but um, 
but for me, what, what comes off as truth, as axiomatic, is that it is something that cannot be, but it occurred, or that it shouldn't be, but it occurred anyway, and it was espoused, and it's out there anyway. You know, for me, it's not the Quran. For me, it's the Book of Zohar, where it's saying things, big things, that we only know now, that it should not have known then, that that blow my mind and that and and that make me look at it and say, okay, here is truth that should be, this is something that should be impossible, but it described it. So for me, it proves two things. One, that there is an objective reality because it's, a, because it's describing something that we did not know until now. And two, there is plenty of evidence, you know, to show that it comes from at least, it at least has antiquity to it. We could debate what year it actually got created, but it has antiquity to it. And for me, I think that's a point that a lot of people will get to where they will find something that is axiomatic. And I don't, I would argue you can't, you can't exactly like build the concept like of something being true until you have like some kind of axiomatic foundation. Now, ironically, like sex said, that's actually very Randian. Like that, that's a very Randian thought. And I do not consider myself a Randian. Uh, I had my time with that, like sex did, as I'm sure many of us have, um, but yeah, I, I, I feel like that's kind of a necessary thing. And Seth can disagree with me and I'm, I'm open to hearing it. Um, but Penguin, I just want to ask you quick. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Does that resonate with you at all? Oh, well, you know what? I, I want to ask you, how does this jive with the correspondence theory? Um, so in the, concept, the context of the Quran, there, was a, there were a lot of people when it started being recited. And this was in bits and pieces and actually not in the order that is current that ended up being written down. But the, um, there were a lot of people that were very interested in disproving it at the yeah, time. Right. It right. stood stood that test. Now, I don't I can't prove the steps to where it got to me now. Certainly after a certain point, there was a lot more written history and there was civilizations and empires. But I can't fully attest that there's an unbroken chain, although that, that's kind of an important Part, uh, really, a segment of religious study, but yeah. at the time, in the in the context when, when when he started first saying these things, there were a ton of people, and actually for very material reasons, like it, there was there was there was money and there was money and power involved, um, being threatened at this time, um, similar to Jesus, but actually very much more fleshed out. There was some real conflict, material conflicts there, but there were people that were very interested in, and there were other religions. There were Christians and Jews, for example. There were mm -hmm. plenty of people that were interested in either putting it to the test or disproving it and discrediting it, and they were right. unable to. So that's kind of evidence if you take the if you take these multiple accounts into, into account. I guess mm -hmm. that kind of relates to the correspondence theory, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But, I, you know, I just... I think there are people who get attracted to spirituality or religion, if you want to use that term. I think, I mean, there's more than two types, but two of the types, one is they are looking for power as in like it empowers them, you know, it, it, it gives them more, perhaps even say, use a term like it gives them privilege, you know, more privileges. And then there are those who are just the truth seekers, you know, who, who are just explorers and they're really just looking for that truth. And they run into something at some point in their life where it's like, there's no way that this can know that. And then I think they start to build like a lot of their, their knowledge base and arguably their spirituality, you know, on that and their, their reality, you know, um, I guess it could still be a subjective reality on that, but I, I think it's what allows for an objective reality. Um, and but anyway, I, go ahead. So religions of this depth don't just seem to be spot, 
uh, popping up spontaneously all over the world sure. everywhere. To some sure. extent, yes, to, uh, broadly religions have and people have, relig or religious or spiritual leaders have, but not right. depth. Because if this was something that could that could just spontaneously pop everywhere, and there's certainly, ha and, and we, we do believe that God has sent hundreds of thousands of people to spread the message to mm -hmm. every culture and every nation. But, uh, uh, you know, you would think there would be a thousand such religions all competing with each other, but there's right. not. I think that's, that's part of the narrative, especially since we believe in, you know, the validity of a lot of the other past. Yeah, people absolutely. Sec, what do you got, man? Tear, tear me apart here. You <laughs> no, no. I mean, when it really boils down to, it's not important to me that you or accept an objective reality or not. It doesn't. Yeah. To me, that doesn't matter. It doesn't. Right. To you, me, wouldn't, you, you wouldn't be subjective if you did. So go ahead. Yeah, yeah no, it's, it's totally fine. Like, uh, you know, it's kind of like what the end result is more what matters like our interaction mm -hmm. and and how we fucking treat each other and whatever else it's right. like what the basis for that is is less important because we're just now we're just like it's philosophical uh philosophical like mental masturbation you know it doesn't mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter what matters is like um you know we we can have conversations and and be fucking kind to one another you know so that, right. the rest of that is there a truth or objective or is there a God, not a God? Is there this or that? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. I don't want to get into like the deep philosophical debates even here. Like I'm, 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 I'm almost barely comfortable because I don't really get into this deep philosophical or metaphysic metaphysics debates because ultimately I kind of just like practicing my religion and being around the people that, that do. And it seems to have spawned a kind of, thing a general consciousness and types of communities that i like and that's really enough for me um that's really enough for me i don't necessarily examine the nature of truth or some kind of medical claim metaphysical claim about god <laughs> even when some that really does interest some people yeah i mean to me it's not that i think that there is no objective reality i just <laughs> it would be hard that would be something that would be very very hard to prove right so you know, you mentioned the correspondence things like, well, five people see a thing. <clears throat> that just means five people saw a thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would, eyewitnesses are often very, very wrong. You know what I mean? So, like, no, right, right. So, when you're trying to like nail something down as, is there a reality that exists like outside of human consciousness? Man, like, I mean, I just don't know how you would even begin to prove that. Yeah. You know, I, and I understand like, okay before it, people start yelling at me <laughs> i understand the the various schools of thought within philosophy i understand the uh um um how we okay we draw things in with our senses and went through inductive and deductive reasoning we figure out and and figure out what is true i understand all these things so stop yelling at me i and i know what i'm saying is you're still it still comes down to the human mind mm-hmm and the human mind can be a very funny thing um, in the sense that think about how um, unreliable eyewitness testimony is. The memory right. is a funny thing. Logic, you want to say, I mean, people's reasoning is also a very, very funny thing. The fact yeah. that uh, lots of people all believe the same thing says means nothing to me. You know what I mean? So the, the, to me, I, I eventually I thought about this for a long time, and eventually I came to the conclusion that <clears throat> if 
in order to prove that there, there was an objective reality, you would have to exist outside of that objective reality to be able to observe and document and, and uh, collect data about it. Right. Otherwise, yeah, it's like, otherwise you're like, you're the fish that doesn't know the waters there. Right. You're right. You're living within this thing. So we're going to fish to describe water. Right. So it's, it's just one of those things that people accept as an axiom, but it's actually not, it's unprovable. Right. It requires a lot of assumptions and faith. And also um, it's not falsifiable. So yeah. um, to me, it's just like, uh, maybe there is, I don't know, <laughs> but I don't know how we'd go about proving this either. And mm -hmm. what does this fucking matter? You know what I mean? Yeah, like, see, does it doesn't so really matter. Right. So I don't disagree with you at all. Like, I, I mean, like, you know, the idea that you've got to be outside looking in to even like really know, like, okay, can you actually see the territory without the map? You know, like, are you able to do that? Um, yeah, like, I, I completely agree with you. And then, and that's, that's kind of where I wanted to get with this um, is that, you know, our concepts of truth, again, most people don't even know, like where they pull truth from, but ultimately for something to be a fact or a truth, requires axioms or at least one it requires that and then you and then you build off of that but we don't recognize that you know and that's why i say like your way of thinking sec is a beautiful thing because like you, you're walking around like without axioms you know and and you're trying to see things as relationally as they are you know to you um well at the same at, at a certain point like you okay so like, if you ask me, do I accept axioms? The answer is no. But at the mm -hmm. same time, it's like, I also have to go throughout my day. So I right. have to, like, accept that what I'm sitting on is a chair and mm -hmm. the toilet's downstairs. Like, I have to, like, act as if, right? Right. When I go out, go throughout my day. And mm -hmm. I have, it's not like I'm always, I mean, I am always thinking, but it's not like um, I walk around like, none of this is real. Do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> I still have to interact as if these things are probable or likely or true or whatever. If you want to call that an axiom, I guess it is, but I, I don't accept this as true by default. Right. Yeah. In, in a philosophical sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Brian, if you were to ask me about like, uh, current events or world events and stuff mm -hmm. or things that supposedly exist that kind of influence, I don't know, our, our discourse and you, were to ask me, do I believe in them or don't believe in them? Do I believe that um, that you know what they say is going on in North Korea? Or do I believe um, something in the Ukraine? Or if, that's actually that's a good example right there. So I believe that there was um, uh, Russians. Uh, I don't know Russians uh, trying to annex part of the Ukraine and and or, or so whatever the story is or. Mm -hmm. or or like one specific thing happened like was there an earthquake in iran or something so something that's so far away there's no possible way i'm going to get like direct evidence or even like eyewitness account of it i'm seeing on tv the radio the internet um generally like it's kind of similar to what i was saying about the, the religious thing there is a contextual mm -hmm. thing but let's, let's let's take religious religion and faith out of it um yeah generally i believe i believe without any other evidence um often for the same reason that like there's also going to be people that are going to try to try to falsify and try to 
try to fact check and, and especially with the internet instantaneous communication and the ability for everybody to have a podcast or a blog like right the, the, i think the, the amount of people trying to falsify things or or um check up on stuff or corroborate is is going to kind of weed out obvious fake information which is why when i don't believe in stuff or you know i question certain things that are presented as reality is tends to be questioning narratives because narratives yes. are they're they're harder they, they can't just be faked and instantaneously they have to be they have to be something that's kind of built over time but false narratives as opposed to just false facts are something that can be over time instilled on people you know yeah yeah i mean so i mean i'm bringing all this up and exploring this you know to suggest that sec is completely right like we need different terms for this because the terms like believe like truth and other things are built on top of other concepts that you know a person would be well justified to say are dubious you know like i recognize what i accept as an axiom now an axiom means it's self-evident and so I have to explain, you know, what say what that self evidence is, and you know, you were getting into that as well, Penguin. Um, I'm not going to do that here, you know, for for anything on my end, but I'm just saying that, yeah, we need much better terms because the terms that we have, and frankly, the language that we have, which just needs to be, I think, tweaked a little bit, um, is leads us into, well, into a lot of conflict because of the perceived certainty. Um, or the lack of recognition that, okay, it's only certainty relationally to me, you know, and, 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 and other people, again, they're just not, they're not rocking that. They're not understanding that. Um, and I think we could explore a lot more ideas if we had terms that were a lot more direct, that had a direct shared definition of, okay, this is a possibility, you know, instead of it, I mean, and, and possibility is not even the right word. Um, yeah, we just flat out need new terms and, and I'm, I'm just going to end it off with saying I completely agree with Sec on that. <laughs> awesome. I love it love when it. everybody agrees with me. That's good. <laughs> the problem um, is that language is basically used for, for like day-to-day, -day, you know, interaction and, you know, everyday rote use and not really, it's not designed for the, uh, from the ground up for kind of um, philosophical discussions. And I mean, that's just kind of the nature of, of the tool that we have to use. So I think that's just what's a lot of the problems. So I guess, Probably there's a lot of philosophy and philosophical um, philosophy of language that deals with that. And I guess mm -hmm. every school of philosophy does have to kind of spend a long time just kind of defining terms, um, which is and but they then they they all have to do it in different ways. And it gets then you get into the same problem. Then again, you, you're still ending up with the problem of lack lack of shared definitions. So, um, you know, that's kind of just a complex problem when you're dealing with logic philosophy and stuff like that so the last time you were on brian oh boy the last two times you were on you dropped a cliffhanger and you said that existence is tripartite the universe is yes the universe okay which is existence i mean also but anyway go ahead sure what uh so what do you mean by that oh boy <laughs> I I think the recording is going to stop again in a minute. <laughs> okay, well we haven't paid off the cliffhanger in like for three episodes in a row, and I guess we could do that again. But yeah, give us I, a, a little something on that. All right, so so I'm I'm gonna 
I'm, I'm going to give it to you this way. So there is, all right, I'll, I'll leave you with this. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm quoting someone else, but space, time, and thought are not the separate things that we believe, but I'm that we believe them to be. Um, and that's, that's where I think that that's where, where I can drop this off and people can kind of think about that. Um, and so space, time, and thought are not the separate things we believe them to be. Yes. Okay. So we, we, we can leave them with that. And I think there's a lot to explore within that. And there, there's another, like, the, the tripartite, you know, uh, conversation builds out into other things as well. But I think we set a pretty good foundation on it. I'm, I'm glad we had the, the, basically, the axiom conversation to say that, okay, to be able to even like describe, you know, to, for me to say with so much certainty that the universe is comprised of certain things uh, does require some axiomatic foundation. And so we actually laid part of that foundation right here. So I think this is incredibly worthwhile. Awesome. Well, we'll have to get you on again, like sooner rather than later. I know you've been you busy, bet. but we yeah. got to not leave it. Like, when was the last time we had you on? Like four months ago or something? Oh, I think it's yeah, like April. Happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was it that long ago? Jesus. I know. Yeah. So, um, but you've been doing cool stuff over there. So I, I understand you're, you got stuff going on, but um, you want to give a brief, you want to tell people what you're doing? Um, oh, with boy. Your lifestyle choice real quick. Just yeah, sure. Um, so, well, uh, so Ellen and I, um, we are, uh, we are going to be on the road. You're going to be doing some uh, some van lifing, to use a colloquialism. Um, and right now, we're we're actually we have the the great the great honor uh, of staying with a dear friend and someone who has ever heard my voice has probably heard his voice as well. Of course, Robin Freebeard. Um, in fact, we did a great July live Q and A for Sovereign Tech that had Sec on it. Uh, Rob was on it. I was on it. We had uh, some other great guests. So it was really a fantastic time. I think that's, is that in the Agora podcast? Um, is that in the, the Patreon for the Agora podcast? Uh, yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. With, uh, with our, in our patrons groups. Yeah. Yeah. So another great reason to join those everybody. Um, Cause that, that was a wild conversation. Um, but that anyway, great. That was a great yeah. Time. Yeah, so a lot of it has been that and just building out a lot of things, uh, you know, for Sovereign Tech in general. But, yeah, I mean, we are going to be traveling, checking out a lot of things. Um, in fact, one of the very first stops to be made uh, is in New Hampshire itself, which is pretty fascinating, uh, which is where we're at right now. Um, and, well, what's fascinating about it, and I guess, you know, if you want to hear more about it, it'll be on Sovereign Tech and it'll probably come up in the Agora podcast at some point, at some point as well. Uh, is the suggestion that the Minoans actually came to New Hampshire uh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, actually, well, over a thousand. Um, and that is something that I'm going to be checking out and investigating, and it's a pretty wild claim, but boy, am I excited to to do that. So, uh, so yeah, we'll, cool. we'll, be, we'll be going around the country checking out, you know, getting into things like that, but in, in general, also just uh, practicing, you know, living a, a far more rebellious life than we already do. So that's what's, that's what's happening. You going up to Canada or down to Mexico at all, or just the United States? Prob well, pro we weren't planning on leaving the country at all. I mean, that more had to do with uh, with the pandemic. 
we just didn't want to get right. like stuck behind another border um out of nowhere you know and right. but uh you know we're, we're not opposed to either big fan of canada here and mexico really so yeah yeah cool i'm i'm really looking forward to seeing um you traveling around and 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 what your shenanigans you're getting yourself into and that kind of stuff so um, yeah again we, we are covering cool. our travel uh in the sovereign technica newsletter so if again if you want to go sign up for that sovereign.substack.com and uh you can see what ellen and i are up to yeah and if you like the void uh sign up for one of either our patreon or um <clears throat> Um, Brian's Patreon because we have all kinds of wild conversations. Uh, oh yeah, in, in his Patreon groups and stuff, and and like he said, the Q and A was a wild ride too. So, um, go check all those out. But Brian, man, thanks for coming on. Um, we should probably wrap it up here. Brian, uh, Penguin, you got anything else before we wrap it up? You wanted to add? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> great answer. <laughs> no, no, it was a great. No. And we, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the, the discussions, especially whenever we go into like history and talk about narratives of history. Because um, I don't know, just to go back to what I said about truth and stuff, because I'm not a philosophy guy, but yeah, narratives, man, narratives is like we're building an alternative. We're just focusing in on one region that you're never gonna, you're never gonna look at like the history of that conflict from that region unless you have this conversation. So I actually learned a lot, and. Um, kind of you know was able to share some stuff on that too and um this is really similar to some uh, another podcast that i have with sex so anytime you want to talk about that history stuff in the in the service of like talking about the narratives that we're both taught and that we that aren't widely known like that that stuff's great man and we had a great philosophy discussion too dynamite absolutely yeah man i appreciate uh i appreciate our conver our conversations and um all that you do. Um, so uh, we'll see you uh, next time. And um, everybody uh, be excellent to each other. Yeah, be excellent to each other. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Peace, All right, peace brother.